0: You're now live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our difficult discussions number four. I am Dr. Megan Miller, and I am pleased to welcome Kaylee Rogers and Michael Crosby for tonight's discussion. The purpose of difficult discussions is to bring together people with different perspectives and different identities to share their perspectives on a topic that is typically considered taboo to discuss, seen as controversial and or is well accepted, but maybe should involve more critical analysis and discussion. The format for these events is as follows. None of the panelists will directly respond to anything the other panelists say, except in part three. In part one, each person will briefly share any identities they are comfortable sharing and indicate why they wanted to discuss this topic. In part two, each person will provide about a five to 10 minute explanation of their history and perspectives with the topic. In part three, each panelist will briefly reflect on one thing said by one of the panelists to share an aha moment or something they hadn't considered before. And in part four, each panelist will share a closing thought about the topic. This might be an action item, a key point they want listeners to carry with them, et cetera. And the views and opinions expressed in this difficult discussions video are those of each individual person and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any affiliated company or professional organization. Thank you to everyone who is joining us live for this discussion. Please remember that each of the individuals sharing within this discussion are sharing their own personal stories and perspectives and we expect everyone to be treated with respect, empathy, compassion, and civility. We will do our best to monitor the chat and anyone who is engaging in a manner that is not respectful of the discussion, that does not demonstrate a commitment to listening to learn, sharing perspectives, and or is focused on making people wrong will be removed from the chat. So now that I have all of the uh, lovely things over that we have to announce about the difficult discussions, how are you both doing, Michael and Kaylee?
1: Hi, thank you.
2: Doing well, thanks.
0: Okay, so the first question is really just like an introduction to um, see who we're talking to tonight and Mm -hmm. why we're talking about what we're talking about. Um, so the question one is briefly introduce yourself with any identities that you would like to share and tell us why this topic. Does anyone want to go first?
1: Okay. <laughs> um, I'm Michael Crosby. Uh, I'm autistic. I have I come from an autistic family. I have an autistic family. I have an autistic wife and five autistic kids. Um, I've been a special ed teacher and an uh, advocate for the last 20, 25 years or so. And I've worked in the, um, as a, a leader in the autistic community for most of that time, uh, helping run or well, running online and offline uh, autistic groups uh, and uh, just being fond uh, uh, of wisdom and, and experience.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today to talk about this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you want to go next or do you want me to go?
2: i will go. I'm Kaylee. I am a neurodivergent um, autistic um, behavior analyst. I have been in the field of behavior analysis and special education for about 15 years. I'm currently a first year doctoral student um, in special education at the University of Oregon. And I'm interested in discussing research because I think it's really important to move the field forward and improve services for for kids. Wonderful, thank you for sharing.
0: I didn't know that you were um, in Oregon. I don't know why, I don't know where I thought you were but I just didn't know. I've been all over. I'm
2: from Ohio (laughs) and I lived in New York and LA and now I'm in Oregon. Wow, (laughs) you've been all over. Yeah. Um, Well, I am uh,
0: a cisgender woman, white, neurotypical, heterosexual, I have a four and a half year old um, son, he'll be five in February, which is just wild to think about. And I'm a behavior analyst as well. For me, I put this topic down for difficult discussions because when I was obtaining my PhD, I started to develop some questions and criticisms about how research is conducted. And over the past year especially, I've identified quite a few gaps in areas where we as behavior analysts can do better and how we conduct and consume research. Um I talked about this actually a little bit on the behavioral observations podcast a few years ago. It was like the last episode that I did with Matt um back in I think 2018 or so. Um and I just I, I feel like I never get to really talk about it in enough detail with people. So I'm really looking forward to today. I probably have like hours of content on this. So Um, Basically, I put it down just really, there's just so many concerns that I think need to be addressed. And I think it'll just be the the tip of the iceberg that we talk about tonight, so. Okay, so our next question is, um, what is each person's history with research? Feel free to touch on anything relating to research. You can talk about conducting research, reading and applying research, participating in research, advantages and disadvantages, and the way research is conducted. Interpreted and applied really anything you want relating to research. So does somebody want to go first. And if not, I can. I just don't want to. always. went first
1: last time. Okay. All
2: right. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? First because he went first last time. Um, I can go, I guess. Okay. Um, so I think one of the biggest issues um, in when it comes to research with autistic students and autistic people is that the, in university settings, the disability studies, um, research and literature and folks who are really aligned with disability justice issues are doing research in one silo. And those who are in like the helping professions, um, education, social work, OTPT, SLP, ABA, psych, <laughs> all of the helping professionals who are working with autistic people are in a different silo and they don't work together. Um, so what we know that autistic people prefer and what people would prefer in terms of like outcomes and what they're looking for in their life Um, all of that information is happening and being gathered right now for the most part in like the disability studies area and not in um, the schools of education and ABA and um, social work, et cetera. Um, And so a lot of the criticisms are related to things like outcome measures. like in ABA, we tend to focus on things that are norm referenced and really deficits focused. Um, And is it possible for us to instead focus on accommodating and more of a strength focused paradigm? So I would like to see personally those, that kind of bridge built and um, more communication and research happening collaboratively across those silos Um, because Right now, if the, if the research is being kind of driven and um, the research questions being asked or posed from a neurotypical helping service professional perspective, um, we're, not, we're not providing services for autistic people in the way that they would like. And um, those questions aren't necessarily going to be the right ones from my perspective.
0: Thank you for sharing that's very interesting to hear about. I can't wait to reflect on that in part three. Michael, do you want to go next or do you want me to? I'll
1: go. Um, okay, I actually have participated in some research, I haven't done any research actually over the 20 years or so. I've run some very large groups, like 15 to 20,000 people at least, and we've had polls, and the polls have been very useful and informative. Um, and I've, I've drawn on those in my advocacy. Um, I've actually done when I was uh I was diagnosed around uh, 2000 or so. And uh, one of the ways I was diagnosed was I participated in research at the University of Pittsburgh, the Autism Center. And they had a week of intensive research, which I who knows how many people I, I did research for, but it was it was very <laughs> intensive and, and they couldn't believe. Uh, and even then, I think there were problems with them understanding autistic well, because they couldn't believe how easy it was. Because they kept saying you need a break. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I'm like, I just want to get over it. You know, I, I we had a week, and I put it in. I think I shortened it to five days because I was so um, willing to uh, do it. Um, the one thing I did notice was they had an MRI, and that was the beginning of when I saw them really being careful about how uh, how they expose autistics to MRI machines and the trauma, which. Really impressed me because even now there's not that much concern about trauma uh, in an autistic uh, as there should be. Um, So, of course, I've read a lot of research over the years uh, and uh, I've noticed there's been a a very huge trend. My concern is that most of it has been pathology based, and this has been medically based. This has been on either fixing or understanding autistics medically. And very, very little about them intellectually or or in any sort of meaningful personal way. Their beliefs, their wants, their needs, their desires, their feelings. Um, like we're only just starting to do that kind of research. And that's the, the main issue to me with that, that we don't yet in research really see autistic people. Um, and uh, so, a large part of what I do now in, in advocacy is to try to. Humanize autistic in the way that I can. Um, I guess that's what I said this. One.
0: Thank you for sharing, Michael. Um, again, I can't wait to share some more in the reflection parts. It's very interesting information. So, um, mine. I wrote down notes because I, like I said, I have a ton to say about this. Um, my history with research. I have conducted research, and I've consumed loads of it in the, um, you know, various university settings that I've been in. Um, I also did, as I don't know how many of you did, just like the random undergrad, uh, like I did psych for my undergrad. And so like part of our coursework was you could get extra credit for participating in the research that the students were doing. So I did those, but it wasn't anything, you know, it was always kind of different like we watched a movie and ate popcorn. It wasn't um, anything like really invasive. Um, I have conducted research both in broader, more mainstream psychology and using single subject design. In graduate school, um, I feel like we were trained in a forceful, almost blinding way about the value of research and the necessity of doing it in a certain way, focused on really heavily on single subject design. Of course, there is a major advantage of research um, and science gives us that objective way of knowing and understanding phenomena and we can demonstrate functional control to develop more effective interventions if we're looking at the right things. There's tons of great things I could say about research uh, that we learn, but we learn all of that. We're taught those things in our coursework, in our fieldwork, at our jobs. Um, So I don't want people to think when I go through this laundry list of things that I don't value research. Um, I don't like disagree with the the necessity of research, but there's just various things that over the years, like reflecting on what I've done with research or been asked to do that, um, I think needs to be discussed and we need to be addressing these things, uh, for reasons that have come up already in both of what Michael and, um, Kaylee shared. So here's my list <laughs> and I'm sure it's longer than this, but the, these are the, the, points I'm going to make for tonight. So the first one um, that came up for me when I was doing my doctoral research um, and when I was just attending classes um, is who are we conducting the research for? Are, Are we conducting the research for the populations we serve or is it to benefit someone's research line? And what happens after the research ends? My first exposure to this was at OSU when we interviewed folks from a community that was subject to a lot of research projects. The community was lower income and it felt like being taken advantage of. Of course, they will allow research. They need all the resources they can get is the kind of mantra that seemed to be going. Um, The people that we interviewed from that community indicated that researchers never asked what they needed and were never concerned about what happened to the community when the research and interventions were done. So that was one of my first like red flags about like, who, what's going on here? Why is this research actually being conducted? Another concern or um, thought that came up for me was during my dissertation and even just participating on a few research projects as an assistant, I became frustrated very frequently because I could see for certain participants that different procedures would work better or prerequisite skills were missing, but we couldn't address those things because they weren't part of the procedures. And rather than pull the learner from the study, um, we would just continue because we needed the participants. And um, the learners who had, these were learners who had a lot of skills to acquire. They were usually like middle school or high school aged, um, basically had been in like a babysitting type classroom where they weren't really taught a whole lot for years. so we were essentially wasting their time by using these ineffective procedures just to benefit the research studies that we were trying to complete. Um, a few years ago, I was beyond disgusted with some of the research that was being conducted in our field where they created problem behavior. It wasn't dangerous problem behavior or anything like that, but for the sole purpose of conducting a study, they like, trained a certain response in a group of individuals with disabilities just in an attempt to try to prove that newer, more effective and humane analyses that were being published by other researchers were false. So this was solely to try to disprove someone else's research. They took a group of individuals <laughs> with disabilities and uh, did, like wait, again, wasting their time. Um, I did a whole podcast episode on that, uh, so I'll post that link in the comments. The fourth thing that came up for me, um, over probably the past like three years when I've gone to our conferences and attended presentations on the research that's being conducted, I see a lot of presentations where the most restrictive extinction-based procedures are being used. And there was zero discussion about working with the participant to come up with procedures or any attempt to fully understand the contextual variables and the needs of the learner before implementing the research protocol. So to me that really weighs heavily on like, people are just doing research to do research and not really focused on the actual individuals that are part of the research. The last one here is my longer one, but basically this year I've had several new areas to consider that have been brought up for me, both with my discussions with autistics and in attending talks on colonial research practices. I'm going to quickly go over this, but our podcast episode that just came out today um, I talk about this as well in there so some of the questions that I've been thinking about with research at what point does research equal facts because that's something I see thrown around a lot especially on social media right now does one study with three children where very few details are presented equal facts um as a science shouldn't we constantly be engaging in philosophical doubt and analysis and trying to improve upon our understanding of a phenomenon To me, that would mean research is an attempt to engage in a controlled understanding of variables and events. And I think we might need more stringent, we might need to be more stringent about how we move from research to facts. Then like we go into this whole idea around um, the colonial research practices that I was talking about. Dr. Malaika Pritchett and Dr. Shala Alai have been um, presenting some wonderful information about this and looking at. Um, Does our research actually work with the participants being served? Um, If the participants that we're serving are trying to tell us that the research we're doing is harmful, shouldn't we adjust (laughs) that research and change it? Um, Is that really the kind of research we want to be conducting? Um, So one of the things that I really liked, Dr. Pritchett did a presentation for Uncomfortable X this year, and she talked about um, how to safeguard against colonial research practices And she suggested using collaborative research practices instead, ensuring that you're promoting inclusion, amplifying voices, that you're preventing exploitation and further marginalization of persons with vulnerabilities. She um, indicated we need to have a paradigm shift in science and practice um, and really look at how we can engage multiple perspectives and work together. And even if we have conflicting values and actions work to discover and create a unity of values so that we can um diffuse um dichotomous uh, imbalanced power differentials so um i kind of rambled there at the end i think even though i had notes because like my thoughts about this are all over the place but those are some of the things around research that have come up for me and that's not even touching on like the lack of research for certain things that people still do in our field and say there's a ton of research for or looking at things that we think are like that I would have read a research study as a grad student and been like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And then I've had the pleasure of interacting with Michael and a few others that are like, well, have you thought about this though? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have you looked at like this perspective? And it's like, no, no, I didn't. I didn't think about that. Um, So yeah, that's me. I did not watch Facebook live during any of this. So I don't know if we have any comments. Nope, we don't. Um, For those of you who are watching, feel free to comment and chime in if you have any thoughts or questions for us. Um, If you have your own things that have come up for you around research that you would like to share as well, we'd love to see your comments. Uh, We're hoping to have the discussion amongst the three of us, but we also want to engage with the community as well. Okay, so next question. Um, is part three, basically just reflecting on what each of us have said. So um, you can point out things, maybe that if I said something that you don't agree with or something that's new that like one of us said that you want to reflect on, anything you want just reflecting on what each person said. So um, do either of you want to go first?
1: Sure. Michael? I think that everything you talked about is important. I think I actually have some links I'm going to dump into the chat in the Zoom. I need to get to your your live. Yep, I'll put them on the live. Okay, Um, which are about the same the same topics that Megan was talking about and the same ones that we've all been talking about. Um, What I think has happened is that there's a what what concerns me. What really concerns me is there seem to be two groups fighting each other the autism community and the autistic community and the autistics are very um, clear about what they think and feel about what's going on in in terms of how they're being supported and i don't think that the autism community is really listening to that and really taking that into consideration i think part of what we're doing here is trying is trying to combine those two communities and get some understanding between both of them because um as in, the way it stands now, the way that we're we're um, the way the way that we're interacting is much more hostile. And you can see that actually happening in the research. You can see that some of the research is literally hostile to autistics and they feel it that way. We feel it that way. You know, when you're looking for a, a cure for autism, when you're looking for a cause for for autistic behaviors that are otherwise innocuous, that you know, we feel those personally inside. And, and we internalize those, even it affects our, uh, our self-image and our image of the world and our ability to trust people. So I think there is a very um, strong connection between the kind of research you do and, the, and uh, the way that you support the people you're doing the research about. And um, I, think, I think that uh, what, what really makes me happy is that I'm seeing more and more of uh, these kind of things like we're having right now, where we're trying to make these... They're grappling with these really hard problems and trying to, to make some headway and some solution. Um, I'm gonna add those links now. <laughs>
0: okay, thanks Michael, I'll put them in the chat. Do you wanna go next or do you want me to? Sure,
2: um, I agree, Michael. Um, I think we're at kind of a turning point in terms of um, like par- a real paradigm shift, honestly, in terms of what kinds of questions people are asking and who is really at the table when the research is being discussed and proposed. Um, Megan, something you said as well, um, related to, I don't remember exactly what it was, but was making me think about research traditions and how in, i mean, I don't know about everyone's program, but in my program, um, I did it, ABA masters and, it was the only research I really learned how to interpret was single case design. And I think that a lot of behavior analysts, or at least a lot of people that I have interacted with and myself included um, before learning some different things, um, have a tendency to really only consider single case research, facts or research. um, When there are a number of different research traditions that can provide information and create knowledge. Um, I think especially behavior analysts tend to look away from more qualitative types of research. Um, And one really, I think, awesome way forward is to utilize participatory action models of research. So including um, folks for whom the interventions and services are supposed to be for at the table at the time of designing the research um, so that you really know that the questions you're asking are helpful for that community. Um, And I thought when you were talking about anti-colonial research practices, I think that it's all all related, right? I think um, in a way when service providers are deciding what is right for um, disabled people, neurodivergent people. that's, that's not okay. Right. I think if we, if we say it that way, it's pretty clear, we should have autistic people leading the way in terms of what is going to be best for those folks. Right. Um, that's what I think at least. And then also being open to the fact that there are lots of ways of knowing and we do have these research traditions and they are amazing tools. And what are some other ways that we can gain information too and just continuing to be open-minded is what I'm learning to embrace as a behavior analyst.
0: Thank you. I, I have a couple of questions if we end up having time because so far we haven't had a whole lot in the Facebook chat. So I'll, I'll do my reflections first and then we'll see. Um, so one of the things that I was reflecting on that, uh, you said Kaylee was um, that like the not talking to one another. So like there's disability studies where there's research happening there, but then there's these other fields that are doing research as well. And they're not, you know, engaging with one another. It kind of makes me think of all, you know, the things you hear about like research to practice gap. And Mm -hmm. I honestly think it's a practice to research gap, but that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And, but it just made me, you know, think about that. I honestly, hadn't just, that was, that's something that's never even crossed my mind that that would be a thing. And now that makes so much sense about like why you see there is research that exists on some of these topics that are coming up in our field right now, but we d- we're not aware of it because we haven't been looking in those spaces and they haven't necessarily been looking in our spaces either. I don't really know. I I'm it's possible maybe they've tried and we've rejected them. I'm not sure. Um, but so that really, Um, I really thought about that and then of course Michael it wasn't necessarily new and now (laughs) six months ago it probably would have been for me but when you were mentioning you know not considering autistics as human and seeing like the humanity um, and looking at you know it's something to cure it's something to solve and it's a puzzle and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think hopefully for anybody who's listening to this that You really listened carefully when Michael was talking about that. And I know my initial reaction would have been to be defensive about that. Like, how how could you say that we don't see you as humans, but when you really sit down and just really read any one of our articles, almost every single one, you could probably read it and find parts of it where you're like, "Hmm, that doesn't quite seem the way you would treat someone if they didn't have a disability, right? Like if they didn't have a diagnosis of some sort, um, would you go with a, you know, with your, especially if you have your own children, like, is that something you would have done as like a first line type of, and some people might, but most of the time, not so much. So, um, and I, I do think like, especially in our graduate training, a lot of stuff is normalized. So we get to the point where we don't even realize that. And that's a big thing of what happened for me. Cause you just, it's presented in this, like, isn't it amazing that we were able to accomplish this with these folks? And it's like, you just, you go in there and you're just like so eager and excited to like help and save and do all those things. And then when you actually like really let yourself dive in deep and like be open, like you were saying to various perspectives, um, it's like, oh, this, if I flip my perspective and I read this as someone who would have a diagnosis of being autistic, (laughs) oh, maybe it's, that's, it doesn't come off as positive as I thought it would, you know? Um, so I know that was a lot of uh, reflections, but those were some of the things I was thinking about.
1: You know, can I say something about that? Yes. Um, the, the main thing I, that, that, that I have a problem with ABA is that it's too, it, rush, it tries to rush things. And I have this problem with uh, general mm-hmm. education and special education too. Mm-hmm. You know, they want things to happen in a time frame that most people can't fulfill. And that's probably the humanity I'm talking about. Being able to um, recognize the, the, the place that you're, the person you're helping is at and then help them get to the place they need to be or want to be, but without you know, interfering with their natural process. Um, and I think to me, a lot of what ABA does is interfere with natural process because it's effective. You know? Wow, we did it. Eureka!
0: there and there's also not necessarily a consideration of like at what cost so like it might work in that little moment right but like if if the natural process wasn't fully acquired or it wasn't functional um in your 16-week research study it may look great but what's happening like a year down the line or five years down the line
1: right exactly
2: and again we need to look a lot
1: more into how um how what we do affects adults, how much it actually helps the adults. Because even if it looks good for kids, you know, you can't you can't use the same standard you use on kids on adults. The world is totally different. What were you saying, Claire?
2: No, I mean I completely agree. Um, and talking about, you know, I I've seen this a lot in my practice as a behavior analyst is not Um, folks not being developmentally informed, just because a procedure works. Why, why is it necessary that a person needs to respond in this specific way at two years old, right? Why do we have to expect zero tantrums at two years old? That's really kind of absurd if you've ever interacted with a two year old (laughs) in any um, capacity, but also what you just said reminded me of something you said earlier. Um, and how all of the research or a lot, a lot of the funding for research is focused on, you know, ideology or cause or cures and whatever. Um, but if we really understood autistic um, cognition patterns and differences in cognition and processing, and like, if we really understood those things and research was focused on, on understanding neurodivergence, then I think we would be in such a better place to you know, create optimal education environments and, you know, really make sure people are thriving in their developmental trajectory. Um, But we're not thinking, a lot of professionals aren't thinking along those lines, I think.
0: Yep. And I I come back to, um, I, I don't know if I, I'm simplifying it too much, but like when people have a physical disability, they understand what's going on there and they create supports to like move through that. So like, why does the same thing not happen for other types of disabilities? It's baffling to me. Like they wouldn't, I mean, I guess there are like, especially for being paralyzed, there's people trying to study how to like help the body move on its own again or whatever. But that's something a lot of, I have a few friends who are paralyzed and they would love for that technology to exist. So that's something they're asking for. Um, but, Anyway, um, we don't have we're we have several people watching on Facebook, but everybody is very quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm excited that y'all are listening. <laughs> but doesn't anyone have any thoughts or questions? Feel free to share. We're on for another like 25 minutes, so um, feel free to to chime in before I ask any questions. Michael or Kaylee, is there anything else you want to talk about that you
2: haven't mentioned yet? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, I did have a thought, but I think I've lost it. So that's okay. Might come up later. Michael?
1: Well, um, if you want to talk about ABA and specifically, um, I, I'm trying to not to criticize it too much because I know that's creates a defensive reaction. I'd rather people were learning rather than closed-minded. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed in uh, ABA is a lot of the research, is in the subject research. And you while know, well, that's fine, like if you're raising a kid or something, um, if you're gonna be applying that to other people, that's not how that works. You know? Autistics, used to, one of the, the big thing we have to get over is seeing autistics really used to So much has changed in the last 10 years or so, that, that you know, people who haven't kept up with that really don't understand autism and but that well. Um, compared to what we do now. And so because of that, I think there's a, a lot of feeling you know, that you can apply things broadly across many different autistics, And that's almost never true. It's almost always individual cases. But those individual cases um, have a small overlap. And what we don't understand, I think what, what we need to learn better by understanding autistics better is what part is overlapping and what part is not. And I think that's where a lot of what we have lost in, um, especially in the
0: VA. Yeah, and we're not those; those kinds of variables aren't reported in the studies either. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've worked with hundreds of children, and I've seen different profiles and trying to understand, you know, how they interact with the world and perceive things as best as I can. And I can sort of create these little like subgroups. And I've developed as a practitioner things that I'll come up with based on those subgroups. But none of that's in the research. And if I wanted to find any of that, the closest is um, that, I'm, that I've that i seen is that uh, Shreveman did an article like years ago looking at, they, they reflected on the pivotal response interventions mm-hmm. and went and like combed through all of their data to see which of the like learners um, responded to that intervention. And of course, from from the more looking at it from an autistic perspective, we could also go down the route of arguing like if that was even truly effective in the ways, but if based on their own, you know, analysis of the outcomes and whatnot, they were able to identify certain skill sets where if the learners came in with um, spontaneous, if they were spontaneously engaging and if they were playing with toys then based on their outcome measures, they um, made more progress compared to to the learners who didn't. Um, But that begs like a ton of questions, (laughs) like it brings up a lot more than it answers. But that's the only one I know of, at least in like the behavior analytic realm, that's even attempted to try to understand like why certain trajectories, you know, would happen or not. just checking to see if we have any comments yet. <laughs> yeah. I I'm thought- somehow getting worse at multitasking on fate. Like I, I used to be able to watch the comments really well and now I just can't <laughs> for some reason, but
2: nope, okay. we still don't have any comments. <laughs> They're still thinking, processing. Yes. <laughs> um, I have a quick thought while we're waiting. So just, you know, we were talking about the silos earlier of disability studies and then the helping professions I think we don't even I mean I don't think I know that we don't even collaborate across the helping professions right I think ABA stays in their own little silo and OT in theirs and education in theirs sometimes there's some collaboration between like education and ABA or education and speech or something like that Um, but I think one of the biggest questions we need to ask ourselves as researchers, um, if you are a researcher, if you consume research, um, if you implement research in your practice, you should, (laughs) Um, is why we need an intervention for something at all. Um, Is a need able to be met through an accommodation instead? We don't always need to intervene. Um, And I think one of the easiest examples or most tangible examples is like um, the concept of like desensitization, tolerance. Um, Often when you're teaching tolerance, I don't wanna say all the time, I never wanna say all the time, but often when you're teaching tolerance, um, that really is a question of who is this for? Is it really for your student or is it for others in their life who are going to have an easier time or feel better about the situation if this kid is able to tolerate a certain situation? Can we accommodate instead? And I think um, we focus a lot on intervention, but what we really have is a tool for analyzing the environment, right? And when when is an antecedent strategy an environmental uh, modification or accommodation just fine? And can we kind of, can we have a mindset shift around that as a field maybe?
1: That would come with help understand the autistics better because I don't know an autistic who doesn't have to make what would be considered unusual accommodation just to live their normal adult lives. Um, so I think we need to be able to understand that autistic live like autistics, and that they will be needing to learn a bunch of accommodations and require a bunch of accommodation from the people around them and that we can't replace those with a child with APH. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully, and is that an area of my own ignorance um, Is that an area in like disability studies or anywhere else that, that there is research published on? I know I'm slightly Mm -hmm. familiar with some of like self-advocacy things for teens and adults, um, teaching them to sort of speak up for themselves. But, um, in terms of especially helping to navigate from like a really young age, Mm -hmm. whether an accommodation or intervention is needed and like, what could, what are some potential like menu of items to consider for accommodations for people that don't understand autism yet, like lear- learning it faster. I know there's tons of resources, like different um, websites and things where people have graciously shared their own experiences. And I think that's a great starting point, but I, I'm not familiar with um, anything more formal, which a lot of people are going to want want those types of things to exist.
1: No, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. it, it's barely starting to Yeah. I think
2: this is, I mean, PSA, come do research. <laughs> <I can't laughs> exist. Um, there's grants available. Um, there really are. You can let me know. There's stocks yeah. Well, somebody, somebody,
0: um, that was the one comment we got from Julie. Yeah. She said we need funding for this. You're so reach
2: me. out yeah. <laughs> um, okay. reach out to me if you want to move to a new place. But <laughs> um, I think that's that's the disconnect. That's like the siloing that's happening. We're talking about what the issues are over here and we're not translating that. We're not taking that information and translating it into practice. Um, and that's where why we don't have like, okay, we'll do this instead. And because the issue always comes back to like funding, we have, we have that barrier of being able to implement services as they're funded. <laughs> we can't just go rogue and do whatever we want. Um, we can like, you know, operate on the periphery and do the best we can, but um, we still have to operate within the systems that exist. And I think that's, what's really cool about participatory action research. I think that we, we need more people. Maybe this is turning into a PSA and that wasn't my intention. I'm very sorry, <laughs> um, but we do need more people contributing to that sort of research that is asking different questions that is proposing alternatives, because ultimately that's, what's going to shift the entire paradigm in terms of funding, in terms of what services look like in schools, in ABA, um, and you know, in, it even comes back to like the assessments because there are issues with outcome measures too, right? We look at like NBBIs to a lot of people, naturalistic developmental behavior interventions, a lot of people look to as you know positive alternatives to more traditional um, discrete trial teaching models that people in disability studies and um, disability advocates have some concerns about. Um, but even in NDBIs, we still have some outcomes that are related to reduction of stereotypy or stimming. Um, so I think these types of research models where we're, um, incorporating the perspective or the standpoint of the people that are being served. So autistic people in this example, um, would help guide those outcome measures. It's not just neurotypical professionals who are like, I know what's best because I have the training. You do, but you're not autistic. So you don't know (laughs) what is best for an autistic person's life. Um, So yeah, the answer is no, I don't, not that I'm aware of, please correct me if I'm wrong. I would be really happy to hear about that, but we do, we need a lot more research.
0: Yes, we do. Um, We have a question on Facebook. I'm gonna share one thing real quick and then I'll go to the question. When you were talking about the um, the participatory participatory research, why is that so hard to say? And the outcome measures, uh, one of the things that I've been working on and hope to have start doing some stuff with in 2021 is looking outside the field. And I've been looking at just some of the general like parenting and social work things that exist. And there's so many better measures
1: <laughs> um,
0: that look at things like you know how much power do you feel you have in your life? And I know it doesn't like, it sounds a little different from a behavior analytic perspective, but I think looking more at like broad repertoires of like, how's your life going? <laughs> and like, what what kinds of things, like are you able to exist as you um, is really in, like, I just think that that's the direction we need to be going in instead of looking at, you know, again, that yeah, the symptom reduction and all that kind of stuff. One of the other things that someone connected me with recently that's designed for babies, but apparently has existed for a really long time, is called RIE Parenting. Are you all familiar with that at all? R-I-E. It's um, Responsive Infant Education is what it stands for. But Martha Gerber designed it or like started talking about it like in the 60s or something. But I read the description in there and I'm like, this is exactly what we need to be training people to do. It's like, get to know your baby for who your baby is. Be responsive and observe your baby and join them in whatever they like to do, right? And it's like, if we could just teach people to do that for all people at all ages, <laughs> it'd probably be really good. <laughs> it
1: seems like that's a lot of what the, the uh, autism interventions are about. It's not like just making them, making kids conform to the parents and making the parents conform to the kid. And yeah. There's one works out there and
0: the other one, so. Yep. All right, so here's our question. Okay. Um, it says, I think about systematic desensitization a lot from an ethical perspective. In terms of modifications rather than direct intervention, how might that look? Is an example such as difficulty using public restroom due to toilet flushing, dryers, et cetera, would the suggestion be um, noise-canceling headphones as an accommodation would that be like one possible way to address that without using desensitization?
1: Well, I mean, I know a lot of people who just avoid using public bathrooms, mm-hmm. you know, and they can usually get away with that. They absolutely have to go to get into them. and I think that's part of what it is. You know, that's like, that's where humans work. You know, they have motivation that change. You know. If I don't really need to go, then I'm going to avoid that bathroom. If I really got to go, I even mean, if it traumatizes me, I'm going to go. and I'm going to deal with it. And that's, that's the real world. And I think that's what we should be teaching artists, um, how to function in the real world.
0: And I think that's left out quite a bit. Like those conversations don't happen, right? It's just, oh, he needs to use the public restroom. And right. there's some sort of either forcing, which is the worst of the things, or um, more of like a, a, a systematic desensitization, where hopefully it's not as um, aversive, My but it could still earplugs. be aversive.
1: My special earplugs I put on just for the bathroom or something. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. It's like you you could sit down and, and do some like actual instruction and discussion around like, hey, when we go out, we need to come up with a plan. Are are we are we holding it? <laughs> do you want right. your earphones? Like, let's have it. And I think sometimes like what I've seen a lot is especially for um for People who may not talk, you know, with full sentences may have different communication devices and things. There's like assumptions made that you can't have those types of conversations or try to explain things. And I just, it makes me so sad. Like there, there's... Thousands of no. humans existing with just kind of going through their day and nobody's ever really talking to them or explaining anything to them.
1: And how will they ever get the point of being one of those people who talk to them and explain stuff if you never interact with them? <laughs> exactly. We so just have to give them the chance. You just yep. have to make them feel included, for that matter, because they're real people. Yes. Um, uh, I was just thinking something I forgot.
0: Kaylee, did you have something to add to that? Yeah.
2: Um, I, oh my gosh, I kind of lost it, but I'm going to try. Um, so I think two things related to just when, what would you do instead? I think it's case by case, right? I usually work with an OT, OTs that I collaborate with, um, to help choose something that would be effective. I would incorporate, you know, the client, have them choose, um, And I like to give the disclaimer too that, like, it doesn't mean that any of these things are never appropriate. I had a client once that was moving across countries and like had to go on a really long flight and was afraid to go on the plane. So we did, you know, work on getting used to the idea of being on a plane because he didn't really have a choice. Um, But most of the time, that's like a really rare situation, right? Um, Most of the time, I know people that don't go to the grocery store and prefer to, order their groceries. We have tools for that. There's no reason they have to learn to tolerate a grocery store if they don't like it, um, unless it's Im- completely necessary for their life and they're moving to a different country across the ocean. Um, accommodations and mo- environmental modifications and even just skipping the thing altogether is is probably OK. Um, I forgot again. If it comes to me, I'll, I'll let you know.
1: What I was trying to remember was that um... I think part of this is also your world experience. I mean, if you've never seen, never known anyone who avoided that, which is not an unusual thing for people. You know, you may think, oh, well, that's not something that we want an autistic doing, you know, but if you know that there are people who do that and it works out fine and, you know, they, they handle it the way it works best for them and they're, and they're great people, then, then you don't really have a problem with that anymore. So I think part of what I've noticed in ABA is it catches people very young Teach them a bunch of stuff that they feel like they've got this like magic powers now. But you never get that world experience to understand how much diversity is out there. And you know, they always apply these very you know, restricted, maybe even naive standards to, to other people. And you know, that can't work when you're working with people who were who as, I don't word unusual, uh, divergent as autistics so or other disabled people. That uh, I, I that I don't see how to solve, <laughs> but I think that's another one of the big issues, not only with in uh, ABA with uh, intervention in general, even in research.
0: I think to solve it, it would take a huge shift in yeah. in understanding our role, our role, intervention role, research role, and and what we were talking about earlier of like really existing to you know support. That uh, development of the person as they are, and identifying like what are those tools? Like what does that look like? You know what? What are you measuring then? What are your tools, um, and all of that kind of stuff? And I, I think like some of the the tools and the outcomes that we use are more based around trying to demonstrate that like I was successful, mm-hmm. like I was successful at teaching you twenty things on this checklist, right? Um, as opposed to like what. Um, what growth occurred for this you know, human that um, we, we had expanded their life opportunities um, and like gave them skill sets that will benefit them into the future without changing who they were
2: or are? I just remembered what I was gonna say. Um, so it, it really is like normalizing the, the concept of lots of different ways to exist in the world. And I think maybe it would help people frame this to think about like other cultures. People have all different sorts of ways of doing, try again, people have all different sorts of ways of doing things every day, like everyday things that you do in your life. Someone somewhere else or in a different culture might do it completely different to you and they still get it done, right? Um, Just because this is the way you do it doesn't mean it's the way this child has to do it, if that helps to frame it for people.
0: Yes. And that is, that's another thing that kind of like, I've noticed, um, it's been very fascinating to me in our field, how, how welcoming of diversity we are in certain ways and how unwelcoming we are in other ways. And, um, but even with working with clients, like I'll have, or my own husband, um, you know, comments made about like, well, it's supposed to be done this way. Like those shoulds, like it should be done this way. And it's like, yeah, cause that's how you do it. That doesn't mean... It's not right or wrong like it, you could still do it a different way. Um, all right we have one more thing for the Facebook chat and then we'll do our close out. Um, so the question is what are some questions we could ask ourselves to help inform our decision making maybe create a decision making tree um, when we're looking at identifying if we need to intervene or identify a support select an accommodation. So. That's kind of a more involved one and that might even be like a a future talk we do, but do you all have any suggestions off the top of your heads?
2: Not off the top of my head. What I would encourage people to do is explore what exists in um, disability studies, disability justice, um, what folks are already writing about kind of the perspective to take in terms of supporting autistic kids and then start to form those questions. I think the answers that I have are based on learning in those sorts of spaces myself. So that's what I would encourage folks to do first is just expand their horizons in terms of what they're reading. Um, we can recommend books and things like that, but yeah, that's what, that's my thought. I
1: mean, I think that what, where it falls down in most of the interventions I've seen for autistic is um, how is this going to produce a happy and healthy adult? I mean, again, you have very different standards for a child if you be an adult. Just something like shaking your hand. You know, you don't expect the child to shake a hand in any way, even similar to the way an adult would. If they just put out their hand and shake it, it's great. With an adult, you know, you're measuring strength and grip and, and you know, duration and all these other factors. Um, and it's the same with uh, everything we do for kids. How is, how is what we're doing now, Going to help them um, function better and to be happier and healthier themselves as adults? Um, I think that's probably the first question.
0: I love those recommendations. So, the thing that comes to mind for me, and this might be sort of a weak answer, but, um, and I'm not, I'll disclaim this, I'm not working with clients right now because I'm mostly doing these types of things. But um, if I did have a client in front of me, Uh, And I guess partially what I do with my own son too. Um, One of the things I'd be looking at is getting into that, like the happy adult piece of it, happy child in that moment too. Not that like children are going to be happy a hundred percent of the time, but in this moment, based on the different variables that exist and what's happening, um, does, does it, is it like, is an accommodation something that, you know, maintains like a happier status and like you can navigate things with that accommodation um, versus like, you know, if I have a learner who's engaging in like a lot of fight or flight, habitual, immediate respondent reacting to something. um, And we've tried adding a variety of accommodations and that's not helping. And then it's causing more stress for them. What needs to be done to help decrease that stress? And it might be a variety of things. It might be some accommodations and some intervention but that's kind of what I've been looking at a lot more lately is like how much stress is happening. And especially if there's accommodations we can add right now that like lessen that stress and lessen that stress response while we work on building additional skill sets, so that when they maybe go into environments where those accommodations just aren't existing Mm -hmm. um, that they won't have as much of a stress response. Mm
2: -hmm. I have a quick thought, um, if that's okay. Yes. No worries. Short on time, but um, yes, and I think we've kind of normalized as a field that it's okay for kids to experience high levels of stress if they're learning. Um, that they're working it's like the through worst it. way to learn. <laughs> yeah, like there. If you look at, I mean, I come from. I didn't really talk about my background, but I have. I started in early childhood education, and then did my bachelors in. Um, psych and sociology and then ABA and back in education. But if you look to like early childhood education, they're not forcing kids to work through these really heavy emotions all day long for the sake of learning. That's going to be considered the opposite of what's helpful. Um, And we've really normalized it as a field like, oh, it's okay, it's working, it's they're learning. Why why are they learning like that? Um, Of course, sometimes people get upset, but it shouldn't be happening every day. For if, hours, if, for hours and then something is probably not right. Sorry to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's how I
0: feel. Well, I appreciate both of you having this discussion. I know we, we kind of talked about like a brighter, broader array, I can't talk right now, mm-hmm. of topics and um, all around research, but um, I really appreciate your insight and uh, learning from your different perspectives. Before we close out, I would like for each person to share if there's anything you would like to see people who are watching this or listening to this do with this information. So what's an action step that you would encourage folks to take? We already had Kaylee, you mentioned, you know, looking into disability studies and just trying to start understanding the research and the work that's being done there so that you can broaden your Perspectives and understanding. That's fine if that's your takeaway. I'm not trying to take that from you, um, but I did want to remind people that you did mention that already. So, do either of you have uh, want to share first?
1: I think that my main thing is that people just need to interact more in a meaningful way with autistics. you know, engage with autistics and, and find out they find out what they feel, find out how they see things, find out how they feel about like things. And do this with adults. Find out how the adults are. find out what kind of needs they had as kids. Find out how what you're doing connects to their happiness as adults, and what you could do differently. Um, and and engage with the aus- autistic community more if you can too. There, there are easy ways to do that. Simple, easy ways to do that, like just joining a, a Facebook page like uh, Thinking Person's Guide to Autism and reading their book and being involved with that. You can learn so much just from that one little thing.
0: What was the facebook page looking oh, person's guy i'll link it right here okay i think i i have that one um i'll link it to when you put it in there i forgot i followed that one i don't know why i don't see stuff from them i'll have to look into that
2: <laughs> Kay- kaylee yeah um totally agree continue to engage it- um, expand your horizon in terms of learning, follow different pages if you wanna learn passively to start, um, but do challenge yourself to engage in conversations with people. I know it can be difficult, but just go in with an open mind and try not to get defensive, right? We know that there are some challenges in the field and that we're not necessarily doing things right. So go in with that mindset and see what what's there for you to learn. What is here for me to learn? Um, and then also remembering who is this for? I think we, we tend to see our families as clients as well as the kids um and of course you know parents are guardians and they're a part of the conversation too but if if all of your programming is is designed to help the families maybe and not necessarily around the kid and their needs um maybe we need to rethink things so who is this for um and i also encourage you to get involved with research if you if you are interested in that sort of thing because we really need it. Does the
0: program that you're in what's the program in Oregon that you're in?
2: Um, it's a multi university co- um, grant collaborative um, between University of Oregon, University of Illinois Urbana Champaign, and Purdue. And there are spots available at all three universities right now. So if you're interested, you could ask me, you could reach out to any of the professors involved. Um, but let me know if you're interested. There are there are spaces. Excellent. It's a special education program though, focused on um, diversity and autism and equity. And it's a cool group of people.
0: That sounds amazing. Okay. Well, thank you both for participating. I don't have anything to add action ad- action item wise. I think we've pretty much covered it. The only like thing I'll throw in there is when you're having these conversations and you're engaging nothing you haven't heard me say before, but be curious and compassionate and kind and humble. It's not a conversation to have to try to prove yourself right and, that, and someone else wrong. That's not, that's not going to help with improving our research practices or our intervention practices. So it has to truly be coming from a place of, of seeking to understand and, and see how that can inform what you're doing. All right. Well, thanks both. Both. Wow, I, it's nine o'clock. It's late. Uh, thank you both for joining me tonight, and I look forward to talking to you again.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This was
0: fun.